HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Food and travel, they go hand in hand. And chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at CharityBuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to Feast Portland or enjoy a ranch-to-table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate bourbon and beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash auction and bid now. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And today my guest is Umber Ahmad. She's a Michigander just like me. Her family is actually from Pakistan, but they moved to Marquette, a city in northern Michigan, right before she was born. Uh, She then went on to attend MIT for undergrad. She obtained a degree in genetics from that school. Then she went to U of M for a master's in public health. And oh, also just for good measure, she holds an MBA from UPenn. She worked extensively as an investment banker, and she's counseled people and businesses on how to expand their own brands. Then in a turn of events that sounds sort of like a Hollywood film, then more so than real life. Through her network, one of her famous clients, who happened to be a very famous chef, caught wind that Umber could bake and he wanted to try her recipes. Needless to say, he was very impressed. This led to the formation of an online bakery operation and then in 2013, the opening of Mazadar, her storefront in Manhattan. Today we're going to be talking about her previous past life in investment banking, uh, being a featured uh person in a Tribeca Film Festival documentary and how she made her transition from holding all those fabulous degrees into opening a bakery of her own. Umber, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So for those listening that need a quick geography primer, 
Marquette, Michigan is in the Upper Peninsula. It's in the UP, as we call it. So it's north of Wisconsin. It sits right on Lake Superior. It's a pretty small city. So I guess my main question is, is it's very isolated. Uh, Why did your family make the decision to move there? Um, How did they, how did they decide on that specific location? And, um, and how long was it before you were born when your parents moved there? So my family, as you've said, is originally from Pakistan. My father did his medical training uh, in the U.S., and then he started uh, doing his postdoc research and teaching at Harvard Medical School. He went uh, back to Pakistan and married my mom, and they moved back to Boston. And when my mom was pregnant with my sister, uh, they decided to go back to Pakistan. Uh, My sister was the first grandchild on both sides of the family, and so that's a very big deal. It's very momentous and extremely auspicious. So they wanted to have that baby with their extended families. Um, After about three years, my parents decided that Just from an opportunity standpoint, it made more sense to be in the U.S., just from expansion, both from my dad's career and the fact that they had a girl, and they really wanted her to sort of have the world at her feet, if you will. And the decision to be in Michigan was really more of a market um, branding or market uh, decision. My dad and his friends did this sort of market analysis that was really quite progressive back in the day uh, to look where there was a dearth of ophthalmologists or eye care in the U.S. And uh, they found this northern part of Michigan that had no ophthalmologists, so they set up practice there. Uh, we were Our family was the only ophthalmology practice in northern Michigan for about 26 years. Um, so he pretty much cornered the market. So you learned, you learned from a very young age from your father about how to look at market factors and outside influences and really figure out certain niches and, and where to find your ability to, to pick and choose your mark yeah, on, absolutely right. on where you could uh, sort of exploit the market. Uh, I'm curious about early life in Marquette. I have been up to the UP many times. My sort of 10,000 feet view of the Upper Peninsula is that it is uh, primarily a Caucasian Christian Mm -hmm. area of the United States and that um, it may 30 years ago not have been the most progressive place uh, to live. I'm curious uh, what what of what I've just said is true, what is false, uh, what was it like growing up in Marquette, a family from Pakistan, um, and also a very well-educated family from Pakistan that would have had a lot of worldly experiences that may not potentially mirror the the many people that live in Marquette? That's a good question. Um, So being in northern Michigan was really interesting because it was a largely immigrant population, but those people emigrated from uh, primarily Scandinavia and Poland. So a lot of Finnish, Swedish, Norwegian, and Polish people, which meant pretty much everybody was blonde, except for my sister and I in school. Um, We were the darkest people anyone had ever seen. Um, They thought we were black for a while. Uh, They thought we were one of the Jacksons and that we could breakdance. So we kept kept trying to explain to them that we weren't in fact one of the Jacksons. We didn't look anything like them. Although now, with all the face bleaching and the nose jobs, we could pass as So I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, You know, for us, it was really one of those where as children, you almost don't notice the differences that you all grow up in sort of a similar environment. We uh, were very lucky to be uh, raised by my obviously my parents, but also by um, an older Finnish woman uh, who we call Graham. She became our third grandmother and uh, she helped take care of us as children. And so we uh, grew up speaking Finnish, um, grew up making Finnish food and bread. And that's actually how I learned how to bake and where my passion for baking came from. Um, so we kind of had that little bit of a link uh, with my grandmother. Being 
sorry, being in a different culture um, was something that was a bit of a challenge for us. And so the way my parents sort of counteracted that is every summer we would spend two months in Pakistan and we would spend a month living in another country. And so my parents would pick a country and we would go and live there uh, really to help us understand, for lack of a better term, the fact that we were global citizens. So... The, the Finnish nanny, I did read that the first thing that you ever learned how to bake was from your, your yeah. grandma, your, yeah. your Finnish nanny that took care of you. What was that first thing that she taught you how to bake? And uh, what, was the, what was the traditional kind of vibe in your house eating wise? If there were all these other influences, did either of your parents also cook a lot of uh, traditional dishes um, from Pakistan or did you kind of assimilate very quickly into this Americanized uh, version of, of Northern Michigan cuisine? <laughs> um, well, so just to answer the question about my uh, about Graham, the first thing I learned how to make from her was a bread called nisu. And nisu is actually um, an old Finnish word for wheat, um, but it's the term for a bread that's made with cardamom, milk, and almonds. It's a little bit sweet, um, and it's braided really beautifully with like four or six uh, braids. And for me, the, the sort of the act of making that bread was more around my bond with my grandmother, or with my gram, um, than it was w- about making the actual food. As a child, uh, she would put me up on the counter and wrap me in a blanket and tell me stories while she would be making food. So that became for me the way in which to tell stories and communicate experiences, which was by making the bread and the cakes and the things like that. So it became very quickly a way that we bonded both with one another and the way my family bonded with other people. My mother was an incredible cook. She made everything. She made Pakistani food, all types of different European foods, uh, Asian foods, and American foods. But for her, food was, again, kind of a way of exploring and expressing, but almost to the point where it would annoy us. So we would go to other kids' houses after school, and they would get Cheetos or those little Debbie snacks, you know, the things in the plastic, which we were obsessed with. And then people would come over to our house, and my mother would make, like, Coquille Saint-Jacques. And we were like, what is this? She's like, oh, I had found some scallops at the market. I thought you would enjoy this. We're like, mom, we were so embarrassed. And she would always make baklava for our school uh, bake sales. And every other mom would show up in, like, mom jeans and Reeboks with, like, brownies from a box. And initially, we were mortified by that. And then we started to realize how cool and interesting that was and how it started to really define us as people. I mean, it's wonderful that you could realize the differences that did make you mm-hmm. unique. But was there, a, was there a lot of difficulty at first trying to find your own identity? Uh, you were an American born. Yeah. Um, did you feel very different or did you not really notice? I mean, you said that, you know, people obviously... Yeah. viewed you differently based on the color of your skin, but was it um, was it an uncomfortable experience for you to grow up there? That's a good question. I'm not sure it was uncomfortable, but it was definitely different. Um, it was different from a couple of things. You know, one, just physically we looked different. Um, the other is our religion was different. Uh, we were uh, the only Muslim family for probably like 500 miles. Um, so we didn't attend church or anything like that. So I know that separated us in, in a little bit. I would say the most uncomfortable thing as a child would be Christmas because everyone would come back from Christmas break and talk about all their new clothes and dolls and books and everything they received. And we never got any of that uh, because we didn't celebrate Christmas. But to counter that, my parents would celebrate Eid, which is our holy holiday, which happens twice a year, sort of at a Christmas level. Um, I didn't really have a difficulty sort of identifying as who I was because my family infrastructure was so strong. I think where I differed a lot was just from the level of acceleration around education um, and and work ethic. I mean, that separated me more from a lot of the people I grew up with than anything else. I imagine that with your father... uh 
being a, a surgeon and, and working at Harvard and I don't know what your, what your mother did, but there was obviously a lot of emphasis on, st- on studying mm-hmm. and pursuing a degree of, yeah. of higher education. Uh, did you find yourself growing up that school was really the first, second, third, last everything? Yes. Did, you, did you pursue other activities besides yeah. uh, education? I did. And school was, uh, was paramount. It was the most important thing. And it was what we were responsible to do. Um, my mother was, had a master's in um, English literature. So there was always a very much sort of this focus on education as a way to, uh, to develop yourself and to create a legacy for yourself. Uh, that being said, we did a whole bunch of other things. I've been skiing since I could walk. Uh, obviously, in Michigan, there's very few things you can do for nine months out of the year. Um, I played ice hockey. Um, and I, you know, we did all sorts of things like ballet and tennis and things like that. And um, we play the violin. I started when I was three. My sister started when she was six. And my mother believed very much in the Suzuki method of teaching, which is a Japanese ideology around music being inextricably linked to a child's ability to develop math skills. Um, And so we started playing violin um, at a very young age. I turned professional when I was 13 years old. And I I toured in Europe and I did all sorts of things around music. So um, one would look at that as sort of in line with the rest of the education in terms of the way in which we pursued it. Um, But it was a way to kind of develop us as people, I think. The traveling, not only that you did as a professional musician, but with your family was a very eye-opening experience that you've talked about before, but I would love to touch on it again right now, which is that uh, when you went on vacation and you would try new foods Mm -hmm. and you would taste them with your mother, she had an interesting way of sort of explaining, explaining how flavors interact with each other. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So my, um, my parents spoke uh, a couple of languages, but we very rarely spoke the language in the country that we went to. So my parents would, would communicate with the taxi drivers and gatekeepers and shop minders about where they w- would eat. And we never wanted to go to sort of the tourist places. We wanted to go where people would go out to eat as, as local families. And in doing that, um, we would go and, and, and have food. And the first thing my mom would do when we'd get our food is she'd have us put a bite in our mouth. We'd have to close our eyes and and we'd have to then tell her what that flavor reminded us of. So I would put a bite of food into my mouth and I'd say, you know, I taste cinnamon. And she'd say, okay, where do you remember cinnamon from? And I'd say, you know, the oatmeal that we have at home that Graham makes us. She's like, great, but you're eating a Moroccan dish, which is bastilla. So it's uh, phyllo and eggs and almonds and chicken and cinnamon. And then we'd be in Sweden and we'd have breakfast and there would be a bread that had saffron in it. And I'd be like, mm, this tastes like Spain. It tastes like that rice. Um, and then the mole in Mexico would remind us of Switzerland and so on and so forth. And so very quickly, food for us became a language of connectivity. And uh, it, we'd be able to sort of say, these people taste like those people. And very quickly, my mom would say, okay, what do you taste like? What about you can you bring to somebody else? And what about someone else can you personalize for yourself so you somehow become connected and maybe an unexpected way. I'm stealing that when I have kids. <laughs> do, I please lo- do. I love that. It, it was fantastic. Uh, it, there's something about young children experiencing food for the first time yeah. that lets that you can watch a kid taste something for yeah. the first time. And as we get older, we forget what that sort of explosion of novelty is like for yeah. the first time to yeah. taste something. Because Unfortunately, we've forgotten what that first bite of ice cream tastes like. So to be able to see a kid go to another country and taste a unique flavor for the first time and be able to make those connections is really exciting. It's incredible. That doesn't then trickle down to 
being a business owner and being able to have someone experience your food for the first time and sort of draw those connections again. Uh, excited and a little bit to talk about the flavors that you had as a child, yeah. both from your parents and traveling and your and your grams to what you developed later. Before we get there, though, I want to talk about uh, education okay. and making that making that jump from northern Michigan back to the East Coast yeah. where your father and mother spent a lot of their time. Um, you went to MIT. I did. And you were pursuing a, gr- a degree in genetics. That's what your undergrad Correct. is in. Yes. At that point in your life, what did you think that you might want to do professionally? At that point in my life, having gone to MIT, um, I was wholly convinced and focused on being a surgeon. I wanted to follow in the footsteps uh, of my father. We come from a culture where it's really important to have a, um, a profession, a vocation. Um, so you're either a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer, um, you're an accountant. So you, you have something where my, my father would always say, you can always hang up your shingle and be able to sort of uh, you know, make, an, uh, make a living for it yourself. So I wanted to do that. I spent a lot of time with my dad in hospitals and, and seeing how he would interact with patients. And it was really incredible just how he was changing people's lives. And I decided that really that that was my calling. I wanted to change people's lives. And the only way that I knew how to do it back when I was 16 going to college uh, was to be a physician. So I went through, went through my studies. And while I was there, I was also working on some genetic research, um, basically what you would call um, stem cell research today. But it was the idea of trying to teach the body to become something other than it currently was. Um, an example of that is if you burn yourself, oftentimes if it's a large burn, they'll take a piece of skin, put it on the burned area, and it will teach the cells around the, the transplanted skin to become skin. Um, a lot of our body does that with the exception of a few parts of our body, including our eyes. So I started to do research about how to take undifferentiated stem cells and tell them and teach them to become corneas. And in doing that research, when I finished at MIT, the research hadn't been completed, so I continued to do that at the University of Michigan, which is why I jumped um, over to U of M for my master's during the period of time at which I kept saying, I'm, I want to go to medical school. And my parents were very smart about this, and they said, just give it a minute. Just think about it. You know, you, you're young. You're much younger than other people in the same position, and you have your whole life. And the challenge is when you're 22 or 23, you're, you, you don't understand what your whole life means. You don't speak in periods of two or three or five or ten years. You speak in months or, or weeks. So I, I relented, and I got a, a master's in international health policy and epidemiology, And what that helped me understand was my goal of helping people and changing people could happen in many different ways. So that sort of became a gateway or or sort of an opening for me to say, maybe it's not medicine in a traditional sense where I can help people, but maybe it's in some, some other form. And I started working in consulting, working with healthcare systems and large groups of people to try to help figure out how they can get better healthcare. And so where did that take you then? So what happened there... Did you jump into the professional workforce after the University of Michigan? I jumped immediately into the professional workforce. I moved to Chicago and and joined a consulting firm. And for me, that was really interesting because I'd never actually worked before. Um, I didn't even have a job as a child, as sort of growing up, uh, you know, in school because... For my family and our culture, school was what you focused on. And if I had other time, it was practicing the violin or you know playing ice hockey or something. You were a little like busy that. being a professional violinist a and, and getting into MIT on early admission. Yeah, yes, so. totally. Um, I applied we'll to 
give you a pass for not having a <laughs> like a waiter job when you were 10 or 11 years old. Thank you so much. It's very kind. Um, so in, being in the professional workforce was really good for me. It was a different type of discipline and it was also just a really different exposure. And it helped sort of distance me from the belief that medicine was sort of the only path. And the more I, I worked with health systems and the more I worked with people to help them figure out how to get the care that they really needed or deserved, the thing that I always came back to was that it was the financial component that made all the decisions. So that literally was the, you know, that was the neck that turned the head. And I said, you know, I need to understand that piece of it better. And that's why I decided to go back and get my MBA in finance. And I did that at um, the University of Pennsylvania at Wharton. And so after that point, you are working in New York? I decided to go to sort of the heart of finance and I moved on to Wall Street. And so you're, you're working on Wall Street and then in 2003... Someone comes knocking at your door and asks if you want to participate in this documentary called Risk Reward, which featured four women that had uh, varying careers that were all either in investment banks or Wall Street related, correct? correct. Um, And so how did that project come to be? I'm curious if your superiors thought it was a great project, if there was pushback on it. And I imagine that... uh, being a woman on Wall Street, there's a much smaller percentage of women that work on Wall Street than yeah. men. Was there any animosity? Like, oh, you're going to be in a documentary and you're you're also working on Wall Street? Was yeah. there a lot of sexist behavior in 2003 in that work environment? Well, the sexist behavior on Wall Street is a whole other conversation <laughs> and probably an entire series of, uh, of uh, radio discussions. Um, so the, the, tr- the um, documentary actually came to me while I was still at Wharton. So truth be told, if it came to me when I was already on Wall Street, I wouldn't have done it uh, because I think it's very different to, uh, to expose yourself in that capacity or in that way or that level when you're um, uh, in a professional environment like Wall Street. It happened when we were actually at Wharton. I was the president of the finance club. Um, I was co-president along with a good friend of mine, Neil Kashkari. And we uh, received an email from these producers uh, who said, Dear Mr. Ahmad, we are so-and-so and we are producing a film about women on Wall Street. We're wondering if we can get your help in sort of getting exposure to some women within the Wharton community that might be interested in participating in the film. So I wrote back and I said, happy to help you um, sort of meet some of these women. You know, Let us know how we can set this up. And by the way, why would you presume that the president of the finance club is a man? Sincerely, Miss Umber Ahmad. So, of course, they write back, tail between their legs. Uh, I ended up scheduling about 20 different interviews for them uh, one day. And I spent the day with them just sort of facilitating all these other people. And at the end of the day, they looked at me and they said, why are you not auditioning for this? And I was like, oh, I don't have any interest in doing this, but thank you so much. And it, and it was when um, Survivor, uh, Survivor, is that that show that where people go on an island? Yeah. So Survivor had just become popular and it just didn't seem like something I wanted to do. Reality television just really wasn't appealing to me. Um, but then they really got to me where they're like, we want to empower women and girls and people who don't think that this is a path or an opportunity for them to understand that there's a, there are real people behind it. Um, and that's why I, I agreed to do it. So I was in my second year of filming when I started on Wall Street. Um, and it was actually part of my interview process where the cameras were outside of my interview rooms and things like that. So all the investment banks that I was working with or I was interviewing with knew up front that I was part of this film. Like it wasn't stressful enough to be interviewing for <laughs> yeah. a job on Wall Street. You thought, oh, I'll just have them film the entire process. It that would be so painful. That's, that sounds rough. You know, you 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 mentioned Neil Kashkari, yeah. and 
the name sounded familiar, so I just Googled, Googled him, him, which led to my ne- which led to my next question, which I had here, which was I wanted to hear your perspective on what it was like to work in banking during the financial crisis. And Neil Kashkari, for those that are listening that aren't near a computer to Google him, he oversaw TARP uh, during yeah. the financial uh-huh. crisis. So he obviously was very embedded in that process. You he were was. working on Wall Street. I'm curious, what is your personal perspective on what it was like when things in 2008 really came to a head and uh, and sort of chaos began to ensue across the nation? Yeah. So um, by 2008, I had... So after Morgan Stanley, I moved to Goldman Sachs to work in their private equity group. And by 2008, that was right when I left Goldman Sachs to start my own firm with a very good friend of mine uh, from Wharton. We decided... We we got some seed money, and we decided that we were going to try and go after something that we believed in. Uh, Both of us wanted to um, target a very particular um, industry, which was the airline industry. Uh, Michael had a background in airlines, and my father growing up was also a pilot. Um, so he and his friends started an airline when we were children. And, um, you know, we used to fly everywhere. And that was part of sort of the part exploration and the escape out of northern Michigan is we had planes and we could fly everywhere. At a very young age, I think I was 15 when I got my pilot's license. And so I've been flying that whole time. So it was, I think, even more... Um, intimate of an experience for me in 2008 because I didn't have sort of the umbrella of the support of a large investment bank. Uh, What I had was, uh, you know, a couple million dollars and a partner. And so what happened was when we went out to actually close this deal to buy the airline that we had made the deal with, uh, the, uh, the lending windows had closed. And there was no money to be had. And there was no way for us to actually get the deals done. Um, And it was catastrophic. It was catastrophic for our business as for many other people's businesses. Um, But what it helped us understand was the way in which finance was working wasn't actually sustainable. So it caused us to be um, and forced us to be really creative and much more thoughtful about the way in which we structured deals. Um, we went through an enormous amount of money. Uh, we lost investors and, you know, things that happened to a lot of different people. But what happened also is that we restructured ourselves, rebalanced, and we grew tremendously thereafter. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to start actually talking about the bakery <laughs> and the second half. We are of, talking about the bakery. The second half of your uh, career and how you made a big transition. Stick with, uh, stick with us here on Heritage Radio Network. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. (laughs) 
Welcome back to The Line. My guest today is Umber Ahmad. She is from Michigan, just like me. After a long career in uh, finance and investment banking, after going to MIT, University of Michigan, and Penn, something very exciting happened, which was through her network, she was introduced to Tom Colicchio, either as a friend or as a client. As a client. As a client. And word got back to him that, oh, you bake and that uh, some of your baked goods are really delicious. And he asked you if he could taste some of them. That's right. And over what I've read is a marathon three day tasting (laughs) session where you decided to not bake him a couple cookies and a cake. You sort of unleashed your entire repertoire. I did. On him. I did. Okay. So don't let me do all the talking. Walk me through the steps. He comes to you and says what? And then what happens after that? So Tom became a client of, of our firm, uh, this, this firm that we started to help uh, brands think about how to better position themselves and how to grow in ways that would be really meaningful for them um, as a business. And in that work, Tom became a client of ours, and he found out through mutual friends that I made pastry. So we were in a meeting, and he looks at me in his very serious Tom way and says, I heard you make food. <laughs> I said, okay. And he said, uh, I want to try it. I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, you're... Tom Colicchio, you make people cry on TV. Like, I'm not about to pack my knives and go, like, this is not going to happen. And, uh, you know, I said, I'm finance and your food and let's, you know, never the twain shall meet. And he said, no, I, I really want to try it. People don't normally cook for me. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I can do that. So pressure I Pressure is on. Yeah, the pressure is on. So I started making all these things that I knew how to make. So I think the first day I made cheesecake and shortbread and chocolate chip cookies and different things. And I showed up like Little Red Riding Hood with this huge basket. I plop it on his desk and I put a bunch of food out and he takes little bites of it um, and he doesn't say anything. Uh, good or bad. He doesn't say anything at all. He just keeps taking bites. And then he pushes the food aside and we have a conversation about his business. We go about the scheduled meeting. And for whatever reason, I decide to show up the next day with more food. I don't know why. I don't know how. And that's sort of what possessed me to do that. And I did it for a second day. And he tasted everything and pushed it aside. And then on the third day, again, because in my head, I was like, oh, I didn't make him. I didn't make him biscuits. I remember that. I was like, I didn't make him biscuits and I didn't make him something else. So I was like, I'm going to make those. And I, I show up that day and I had jogged from my apartment to his, his office, which is only like seven blocks, but the biscuits were still warm. So I like show up this sweaty mess. I've got these warm biscuits and this beautiful towel and I plop them on his desk and he eats them and I bring like out some cookies or something. And then he looks at me and he says, what do you want to do with this? And I thought he meant, what do I want to do with the food on the table? So I thought, do you want me to throw it away? Will it fit back in my bag? Should I give it to your assistant? Um, and, he, and I said, uh, I can take it out. He goes, no, what do you want to do with this? You're tremendously talented. What do you want to do with your food? Um, and I looked at him and at that moment, like everything that I'd ever done in my life all of a sudden came together. And I looked at him and I said, I want to do for myself what I've been doing for so many other people for so long, which is building the next great global heritage brand. And he looked at me and he said, okay, let's do it together. So that's how Mazadar Bakery started. And so the conversation that happens there, that wonderful moment when he says, you're talented. Let's do it together. Mm-hmm. Do you immediately kind of kick things into high gear and say, all right, I'm off to the races? Or did you sit on it for a little bit and kind of return back to your desk? And did you shelve it at all? Or did you immediately click in and start getting the wheels turning on opening up the bakery? So I think when I left that meeting, I think I threw up. <laughs> and then after I sort of cleaned myself up, um, I sort of had this moment of clarity where 
I wasn't sure that offer was going to last very long. Tom didn't put an expiration date on that, but I thought if he's interested and he's interested today, then I need to jump on this. So I immediately went into the kind of the planning stages of it because starting a business is not a small deal. Um, And actually doing something for yourself when you've been sort of under the protection of larger firms for your whole career is also very daunting. Um, And I was going into food. I didn't know anything about the food business. I I went to restaurants, but besides that, I didn't really know um, what it meant to build a food business. And so I knew I had a lot to learn. Um, So I really tried to take a step back and say, okay, if I'm really going to go forward and do this, what will it look like? Um, And tried to involve Tom as much as I could in the sort of the thought process so he would continue to stay engaged. Based on your your extensive brand building and, and your financial modeling capabilities, you were uniquely suited to start your own business. You mm-hmm. definitely knew how to do a lot of those parts. And you had a partner now mm-hmm. in Tom. So you had a lot of those pieces. Yeah. But what I guess I'm really curious about, and, and you obviously had talent, but what I'm curious about is like, bakeries aren't the best business model. <laughs> they're, they're hard. They're long hours. <laughs> you get margin, really dirty. Yeah. The margins are bad. They're hard to scale. Consistency is a problem. You know this. We could go on talking about it. So, yeah. I'm, so I'm wondering, you had all this brand building expertise. At any point, did you say, you know what? I should look at another business to focus on. Or was it, okay, I'm doing this. I'm doing the bakery. Like, Did you, did you take a stab at other entrepreneurial models and think to yourself, you know what? I am going to open up a business, but maybe I'm not going to open up a bakery with Tom Colicchio. So I have been an entrepreneur for a very long time. I'd started two investment firms. So being an entrepreneur and starting something new wasn't the consideration. Um, Really trying to find something unique in a market was always what I was looking for, not just for myself, but for my clients. It was like, how do you position yourself differently? That the food market is extraordinarily um, uh, crowded. Uh, bakeries, you can't swing a dead cat and not hit a bakery. Uh, but what I was doing was creating um, a larger ideology that's going to start with pastry and it's going to get bigger from there. The thing that I've challenged myself to do, and I have to continue to do that, is I had to become my own client and say, if I were, if I were a client, what would I instruct my client to do? And in doing that, really trying to create the right structure. And I have to actually take a step back very often now and say, okay, as an advisor, what would I tell this business to do? And I'm actually in the process of changing things right now with that with that lens. Um, for us, it was really about uh, me saying, there's somebody here who I can actually capitalize on. I could start a you know a chair company or a tech company, but I didn't have that sort of that stamp of approval, if you will, through Tom. Um, and also really believing that if I if I tested the market in a low cost way, a sort of low investment way, and it was working, then I would build it from there. So what I did was I said, let's start online. I don't have the brick and mortar responsibilities. I don't have a lot of other things I'm sort of burdening me. Set up a website said to all of my investment banking friends, I'll send your clients pastries for free that December. And I said, let me do that. Let's figure out if we have any traction. I had a really high return rate in terms of customers coming to me, started to build. Um, I met Intelligentsia Coffee. They were coming to New York. I started doing wholesale for them, started to build and build from there. And once I had a critical mass sort of understanding and uh, customer base, I said, okay, this is something where there's, there's actually some traction and let's go ahead and build this. That being said, just build making pastry, and I'm not diminishing the importance of the pastry, but just making pastry does not a business make. So it's about how do we build and grow from here. My vision for this, my my client's vision uh, for Mazadar Bakery is that this is going to be part of a larger brand story. Um, an LVMH or a Caring, a Richemont will look at this and say, 
part of an experiential luxurious life is having a food that is both meaningful and shareable. Uh, most of the expendable income uh, across the world now uh, sits in the pockets of millennials. Majority of what millennials are spending their money on are experiential, um, experiential spending. Travel, food, things they can share, things they can Instagram, things they can show other people, things that they can bring other people into. So food is the natural first step or the first bite, if you will, into a larger luxury lifestyle. So take an example of, um, of Chanel. So most women will probably want a Chanel handbag. Most women will probably not spend $10,000 on a Chanel handbag. But most women can have a Chanel lipstick. $35 or $40 later, they can pull that out. They have the luxurious moment and experience and feeling without having spent that same money. But as they grow in their lives and their career and their bank accounts, Chanel wants them to get into larger spending. Food is a great way to introduce people into larger luxury. Mazadar Bakery would be the perfect foray for any luxury brand to introduce people into that spending. So, so the 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 way that you're building your brand is really you have a you have a large scale kind of identity that you're hoping to achieve that isn't necessarily tied directly to <coughs> the ex, the experience in the store right. of even ordering the pastry in the store. Correct. So when you when you did get started, did you lease a space and buy some ovens and did you start baking or did you sort of did you like co-op your recipes and have someone start do production for you? Like right. how did that process start? I mean, you're talking about building something very large like right. Chanel and I, I see the, the plan, but I'm curious like at square one, the day one that you started, yeah. how did you really get started? So day one started my apartment. <laughs> I um, started baking out of my apartment. I set up a website. I created five emails so people would think that there were more people. So there was like a sales at Mazadar Bakery, admin, info, all these other things. Um, I'd pick up the phone and then I would like pretend to be my own assistant, change my voice and then, you know, count to five and then get back on the phone um, sort of to, to start building. And then um, as I had a little bit more traction and I wasn't able to produce all of the pastry out of my apartment, I moved into one of Tom's commissary kitchens. So he gave me space in his commissary on the west side and I started uh, baking out of there. <clears throat> I got to the point where I couldn't do it all myself. And uh, I brought on one person uh, who became a chef and a partner with me. And then we grew the business from there. And when we started to get to a place where we couldn't actually uh, produce all that we needed to in the space that was allotted to us in the commissary, we moved into another commissary up in Harlem. At that point, it was like, okay, we have enough revenue and uh, sort of customer traction where I think having a physical retail space is important for us. Food is very um, immediate and tangible. Uh, the last thing you do with your food is eat it, right? So you see it, you hear it, you touch it, you smell it, and then you eat it. So having that physical piece was actually really important, kind of a flagship, if you will. Um, and it was also an opportunity for us to have our own kitchen, to do wholesale, the retail in-store, and the online business, which is uh, really where a lot of the, sort of the higher margin exists. So a, a lot of people that or have an idea for a business, food business, any business, they need to scrap together some money and yeah. they do that usually in a combination of friends and family and then they put some stuff on credit cards. Yeah. Uh, it can be a slog, like yeah. even for really high profile chefs. Yeah. You were in the money realm. You had money friends. Uh, you had a lot of experience with investment. I'm curious, what was your fundraising experience like? Did you did you self-fund? And if you did raise capital in a traditional way, 
what did that look like? Did you did you build a deck? Did you have tastings? Yeah. So what was that sort of funding experience like for you? So the funding experience for me was very different than when I would go out and fundraise on behalf of Goldman Sachs. So you walk into the room, um, a conversation around fundraising with Goldman Sachs was more how much are you going to give us, not are you going to give us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you go out on your own, uh, it, it's really daunting and it becomes a really sort of intense process. And one of the things that I, I became sort of acutely aware of is that the most high, one of the most high risk investments that anyone can make is in a food business. Um, so it's one of those where I was always very transparent with people to say, look, I really believe in this idea. I know that it's going to succeed in the off chance that it doesn't, you should not expect to ever see this money again. Um, and then that's a lot of venture investing, which is I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to put a certain amount of money in and I'm going to grow the business from there. Um, I became like Mary Poppins. I used to walk around with a bag of food all the time. I would meet people and be like, Oh, it's nice to meet you here. Have a granola bar. Like it was just one of those things where I I honestly wasn't sure where the money was going to come from. I got some money from my money friends, but most of my money friends are like, you know, we don't invest in friends. And I'm respectful of that. Um, But by the way, all of you, when you come back to me and want my money, just remember that. (laughs) Um, But so it was about finding strategic capital and people that I thought could help me in other ways um, and just started trying to meet people and go through family offices. Um, I had a deck. I had a business plan. I had a, you know, financial model. Um, But a lot, none of that really matters outside of in an early stage company, the, the investor has to believe in the entrepreneur. They have to believe that you are all in. I self-funded. Um, there was my, my part of my retirement I, I liquidated to do this. And so there's a lot of skin in the game, but there's also a lot of my own money in the game. What advice would you have for someone, an entrepreneur that's listening? They're very eager to start their own business. They don't necessarily have personal funds that mm-hmm. they have access to. Uh, and maybe their network is a lot of other people that work in restaurants and right. don't have a lot of money. Is there, is there a piece of advice that you could give them? Perhaps uh, one part of a strategy that you think is the, the way to begin that process of trying to take your idea out to market? The one thing that everybody looked at me for was proof of concept. And proof of concept means... there's somebody out there that will buy what you're trying to do. And you have to create that proof of concept. So you can do it in many different ways. If it's a food business, do it in a smaller way. Start at Smorgasburg, um, start online, find ways that you can, you know, join a larger group, supply things to people um, so that people start to be aware of what you do and and your product and actually sort of create some stickiness around that. If you don't have a lot of capital, um, the other thing that I think has been really interesting is there have been more incubators that have come up. So an incubator, for those of you that are, aren't familiar with the term, is an organization that will bring in brands or bring in companies and, and assist them, both financially but also with other guidance. So they may have accounting assistance or you know manufacturing assistance or legal assistance, but really helping them sort of think about how to grow. They also help them fundraise and sort of help them expand. You opened the physical location of your bakery yes. in 2013. Uh, no, I opened in 2016. 2016, yeah. sorry. What uh, what were the main differences for you day-to-day from having the physical location versus prior when you had the commissary and you were dealing really exclusively with wholesale clients? Wholesale and online. Wholesale and online, website. yeah. yeah. Um, the amount of stress has <laughs> gotten to a level that I didn't think was humanly possible without my, my brain exploding. Um, the idea of having a physical location um, is actually much different than just supplying food. Um, so just the considerations around having a New York City Manhattan rent to pay um, is something that, that sort of weighs on me every day. Um, the idea 
was those all those things were offset by the level of excitement that I have around being able to be a part of that experience when people first take a bite of our food. So much of what we do is around making a connection with another person around what we make and how we make it with what's happened in their life. Um, So being able to sort of see that and create that relationship has been really important for me. One of the things that we love is when people say, God, this reminds me of my grandmother or reminds me of of this great trip that I took. Um, We started soft serve last summer and we had a a very prominent restaurant critic come in and he took a bite of it and he looks at me and he says, this is the best Dairy Queen I have ever had. I was like, brilliant. That's exactly what I want you to say. That's totally the emotion that I want you to have because you know why? You're remembering your childhood. You're remembering something really great and interesting and important and it's brought you into today and now we have you. So for me, the, the physical retail was about sort of getting the customer to come in. The challenge is, is I pay that rent every single day. If it rains or if it's spring break or something happens or it's Passover, you know, my sales go up and down. And that is, uh, that's something that I think is very, very challenging. You just talked about some flavors and hearkening back to childhood and how one bite can elicit uh, an emotion. Yeah. And we were talking about that earlier on in the episode. Uh, do you use any of those Finnish Scandinavian we flavors? Do. do you use any Pakistani spice yep. flavors? Can yep. you speak a little bit to that? How, how those have uh, played a role in some of the baked goods that you make? Sure. Uh, the food industry is very crowded. So you have to be able to distinguish yourself in any way. And doing that, a lot of it is people do something that's completely outlandish and totally crazy. So it's a pastry, a pastry sort of hybrid or it's something that's got charcoal in it or whatever, which is very interesting and is novel. But for me, it was about how do I create a differentiated product that actually has longevity? Um, I want to be relevant without being trendy. And so to be able to do that, we've taken spices in. So a great example of that is our nisu. We actually make the nisu at the bakery. Um, so it's a traditional recipe and we've sort of transposed that traditional recipe into a bakery product. Um, Other ways that we've done it is we've introduced the subtleties of certain flavors that may not be sort of the same level of intensity or exposure, but in something else. So an example of that is uh, we make something called a Bostock. And Bostock is a French pastry that is a brioche that has um, frangipan, which is an almond cream and uh, toasted almonds and it gets baked through. And it's just sublime. It's kind of crunchy and it's got a little bit of a sort of a chew to it and it's really delicious. And what we do is we add a little bit of orange blossom water into the mixture that goes onto the bread. And orange blossom water is a very traditional spice uh, flavor that's used um, in Pakistan. It's used a lot in the Middle East. It's you know used in, in parts of um, Africa, um, but not very common in, in the United States. So you're taking a bite of something that's familiar, almonds, brioche, you know that. And all of a sudden you get this orange blossom and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And you're evolving your, your sort of palate. Our pistachio raspberry tart has a little bit of rose water on it. So it's not so floral that you feel like you have soap in your mouth, but it's enough to say, this is opening sort of my mind to something different. So we do that a lot. We put cardamom in things. We're putting cilantro and um, coriander into other things where it's a little bit unexpected. Have you uh, kept any of your private clients advising uh, on the investment side of things, or are you full-time Mazadar Bakery? How do you currently split your time? So I am both full-time Mazadar Bakery and full-time uh, at our investment advisory firm, Specialized Capital Management. Um, the the blessing that I have around the um, advisory piece of it is that there are five partners. And so my job is really relegated to sort of creating the relationships or sort of finding those uh, sort of connections um, or bringing in the people that I know or people that I have relationships with to continue to build the deals. Um, I don't do the day-to-day execution of our transactions anymore because my, um, my every 
every day is spent at Mazadar Bakery. So how many people do you have at Mazadar Bakery? Uh, we have 14 people. And how many people are at the investment firm? Um, we are uh, nine. So you've, you're doing both at the yeah. exact same time. Yeah. Do you find any time to fly? Do you find any time to play <laughs> the violin? It seems like you have really the two hardest uh, <laughs> hour, hour sucking jobs that you could have. Yes. You work in investment and then you started a small business at yeah. the same time. Do you get any are you getting any time for no. yourself right now? No, uh, no, I'm not. I would love to tell you that I am, that I've got this great balance and, you know, my hair is bouncy and my skin is clear. Um, but the reality is, is that I'm, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and for you to really make something work, you have to give it your all, but you have to also find balance. And I would say that I'm probably on the side of not having enough balance. Um, you know, part of that is sort of what I do. Um, part of it, I think, is a coping mechanism. My mom died three weeks before the bakery opened. So for me, I think work has been a way to kind of throw myself into that versus the grief. Um, but I think at some point, and I, you know, I don't ever want to be the as soon as girl, but as soon as we get to a certain level with the business, I think I'll be able to sort of step back a bit. I've started to do a little bit more. As you grow, you are able to bring in people. The challenge with growing as an entrepreneur is you have to let go. Um, and just inherently as an entrepreneur, you're not good at doing that. Um, so sort of being committed to the outcome and letting other people develop their own path is sort of what's helping me be able to sort of take a step back. You're sort of in this uh, middle stage right yeah. now. You're not the, the super scrappy startup, but yeah. you're also not quite getting acquired by Louis Vuitton right. just yet. What is the next step for you to continue on that sort of upward climb up that staircase to attracting a luxury brand to say that you're a piece of the puzzle to yeah. their kind of, to their overarching strategy? That's a great question. Um, I think that the, the next sort of phase is twofold. One is we have to gain some market share. I mean, I think that's true of any business, but it's particularly true of ours. So that means expanding physical locations. Um, so we are looking at a couple of other locations in New York City right now. We're looking at an opportunity to be in Washington, D.C., an opportunity to be overseas both in Asia and in the Middle East. So we'll expand the bakery component. And the other part of it is expanding the rest of what Mazadar actually means. So Mazadar, the word, is a word out of the Urdu language, which is the word that we use to describe um, the magic or the essence that makes something special. So imagine you bite into one of our donuts and you're like, God, this is delicious. Is it the vanilla? Is it the pastry cream? I don't know what it is. There's a mazadar to it. There's a magic to it. We use it to describe people. So maybe it's the first time you met your true love. And you say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to this person. I don't know what it is about them. But it's something that causes you to go back and it's what you fall in love with. So we hope you fall in love with us and you come back. But it isn't just about mazadar in the food, but it's mazadar in your life. So the next part is the expansion of the bakery component, but the expansion beyond the food, there's just the pastry piece into helping people think about how they can live um, a life that sort of embodies mazadar. Chef, thank you so much for joining us thank here you, Chef. on the line on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, it's been wonderful to hear your story and you. tell everyone where they can find the bakery. Yes. Um, so our physical locations in New York City is at 28 Greenwich Avenue between West 10th and Charles Streets. We're open seven days a week. Um, come early. That's before the donuts and the sticky buns sell out. That's a little inside tip. Um, and you can also find us online at uh, mazadarbakery.com. We ship uh, throughout the United States. And we are usually back every Tuesday, but we'll be taking a break here at Heritage Radio Network for a couple weeks. But 
We'll be blasting out tons of content over the next couple weeks, probably a couple uh, highlight top episodes from this season and seasons back. And join us soon for season six, which will debut in a couple weeks here on Heritage Radio Network. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.